from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. So there has been another warrant issued for his arrest but it starts the process all over again. All over again. Tell me about that. Is refiling charges enough here? No, no that's all. stressful because he can go out of town. He can hide. Y'all have to find him, you know what I'm saying? It ain't like he's going to turn himself in. The point is whether it is unusual and whether it is just are two very different things because by doing it this way, it says that the due process rights of people accused of a crime are less important than, say, many times perpetually detaining them pretrial and continuing to prosecute them. And so you're saying here in these cases, um, it's unusual that you would see this level of no-show, but the office is frequently using these kind of dismissals just to start the clock again? Yeah, yeah, that, that's an accurate way of stating that. I'm Sarah Fenske. Three different murder cases have been dismissed in the past week in St. Louis after prosecutors failed to show up in court or weren't ready. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch broke that story and traced the problems to massive turnover at the office of St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. One case where the judge dismissed charges in the past week was the April 2020 murder of Randy Moore. Prosecutors failed to show up at three consecutive hearings. After the judge dismissed the charges, the man charged with killing Moore was released from jail. He's now at large. KSDK I-team reporter Christine Byers spoke to Moore's sisters about those developments. So there has been another warrant issued for his arrest but it starts the process all over again. All over again. Tell me about that. Is refiling charges enough here? No, No, that's stressful because he can go out of town. He can hide. Y'all have to find him, you know what I'm saying? It ain't like he's going to turn himself in. And that is Randy Moore's sister, Brandy Veasley. She also added this. Kim Gardner is a poor excuse for a prosecutor. It's it's, it's not fair. I know she tried to give... Uh, uh, the black people chances, but on a murder, no, no. Now, the near constant turnover in Gardner's office isn't just a problem for victims. It's also caused big problems for defendants who are seeking speedy trials. That's something Matthew Mahaffey sees regularly. He is the district defender for St. Louis, supervising local public defenders for the Missouri State Public Defender, and he agreed to join us today. So, Matthew Mahaffey, welcome back. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. I appreciate it. And just one quick note as we begin our conversation. We invited Kim Gardner to come on the show and discuss these dismissals. She declined. We also invited Police Chief John Hayden to discuss how these matters affect his office. He also declined. And Interim Public Safety Director Dan Isom was also unavailable to join us. So, Matthew Mahaffey, you're here. Let's talk. (laughs) Um, How do do the dismissals of murder cases, like the ones highlighted by the Post-Dispatch in the last week, how does that affect your clients? That's a great question, Sarah. I think the important thing to remember on a case like that is that the individual charged was confined at that point. And so I think as the sister of Mr. Moore accurately stated, it starts the process over again. And that is a a, a troubling reality for everyone that's involved with that case, regardless of if they're with the prosecutor's office or with our office. For our clients, many times it means that they remain confined 
and they have to start again towards what they hope is an opportunity to address the case in the way that they have decided they want to address it. Um, it causes, obviously, lengthy delays for them, but you're also talking about someone whose liberty has been taken away, so opportunities for employment or, or betterment or engagement with family is also removed. And then secondly, I think, as you, as you asked, on our staff, the, as everyone has, finite time in this world, they are trying to prioritize where to give their time and talents with regards to their caseload. And so they're preparing and giving their attention to cases that they think are going to trial. And then when they do not, they have obviously had to put aside things that now need to take attention and that they could have maybe been given to attention to at that time. Hmm. In one of these cases that the Post-Dispatch wrote about, uh, they reported that no one from the circuit attorney's office showed up for scheduled hearings in May, in June, and in July. And, and presumably, the defense attorney was there waiting around for them to show up. Is that unusual in your experience that there would be a string of hearings like that where there's just a no-show? That would be unusual. And you're correct in saying that the Defense counsel Chelsea Harris was present. Um, the dismissals itself, I would say, in short, are not as unusual. It's a procedural mechanism available to the prosecutor to use as they see fit. And quite honestly, Sarah, it is not unique to Kim's office. That is something that has been available to prosecutors for a long time. But I think the point is whether it is unusual and whether it is just are two very different things, because by doing it this way, it says that the due process rights of people accused of a crime are less important than, say, many times perpetually detaining them pretrial and continuing to prosecute them. And so you're saying here in these cases, um, it's unusual that you would see this level of no-show, but the office is frequently using these kind of dismissals just to start the clock again? Yes. Yeah, that, that's an accurate way of stating that. So one of these other details uncovered by the Post-Dispatch, they reported yesterday that one prosecutor on maternity leave had been assigned at least 10 felony cases after going out on leave. That certainly seemed really unusual that this would end up on her docket. What do you think is going on there in that case? Boy, I could only speculate on that. And I do wish, obviously, someone from the circuit attorney's office could have joined us. I think, you know, in our office, Sarah, we try to take such requests on a case-by-case basis and base it on what is the reason for the leave. Um, And, you know, if it is known in advance, for example, a broader approach would be to work with the person that's going on leave to establish what coverage needs exist on their cases and to secure those before they go out. Um, And then also to have them maybe in advance of the leave take care of things that they could have. Um, I think one important thing to note in all of this, though, that you kind of alluded to earlier is there are some things that could help alleviate the practice of the nolly and reindict, or as I think more a colloquial way of putting it would be, you know, dismissal and refile, because I do think it's going to exist under this administration and any other administration. And one of those would be the, the court and the prosecutor could think about releasing people that are charged if they're going to continue to hold them and delay their cases. We have a wonderful pretrial service office in the 22nd Judicial Circuit run by Sarah Phillips that the court invested in that is there to, to, to help people with services while they're waiting for disposition or to help put in place ones for people that are detained. And we could also, and I think we've talked about this, you and I previously, start holding the state accountable in the associate courts. And that simply, in my opinion, is not happening. 
And I want to talk um, in much greater detail about that, because as you mentioned, we have talked about this previously on this show. I know this is a major concern for you. Before we do that, though, I think it's only fair. We did get a statement um, from Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. I'm going to read that now. Um, This is, quote, upon review of our internal policies and procedures regarding family medical leave, we have determined that corrective measures are needed to further prevent any future repeat occurrence of the incident in question. The suggestion, however, that there have been additional instances that have occurred like the one in question have not been substantiated. Be assured that as the circuit attorney of the city of St. Louis, I am accountable to the public for the actions of the office and remain committed as ever to upholding the highest possible standards and practices of accountability at all levels of this office, particularly the public safety of the residents of the city of St. Louis. As a result, the individual in this case is in custody. Now, after that statement was given to us a couple days ago, it has come out that individual is not in custody. They apparently misspoke on that. And one of the other developments that has happened is that the circuit attorney who was on her maternity leave and assigned all these cases while she was off, she has now quit. uh, Matthew Mahaffey, in your opinion, do you think this has hit the point where problems related to turnover are just feeding more and more turnover? This is becoming a vicious cycle. The the turnover does create quite a problem, Sarah, in that obviously consistency in any job is, is helpful towards accomplishing the goals of that office. And I think you're seeing that play out in what we've talked about before in the, at the associate court level, where I think one, one solution for the turnover would be to rethink how you're filing charges. If a case isn't ready to be brought forward, if you don't have what you need to move that case forward under the rules, I would think best practices would be to wait to bring it. So as an example, Sarah, instead of filing a case by complaint, if you're not ready to have a preliminary hearing, and you want to have a grand jury, why not wait to file it until you have it heard by the grand jury and you've secured your indictment? These are things I think that are simple fixes to an existing problem that in the 22nd have not been implemented. Hmm. I imagine there'd be some pushback on that from people in law enforcement or people who are worried about crime levels in the city. They'd say, hey, if you're not bringing that uh, direct complaint, that that the person is then not in the system, they're not in custody, they could go out and commit more crimes. What would you say to that? I would say that we have a presumption of innocence. And I I hear the concern there, and I, I don't want to invalidate that concern. But the way our rules are designed is if you charge an individual by complaint, that starts the clock towards when they should have a preliminary hearing. Um, You get 30 days if the person's confined and 60 days if they are not. If you are not ready to do that at that point, you are violating that individual's due process rights. Our system does not exist to charge people pretrial and detain them indefinitely, even though we have decided in many ways that we're going to do that at the associate court level in the city of St. Louis. That should that benefit of the doubt needs to be given to the person that is accused. Otherwise, what we're saying is we're okay with a Guantanamo type situation where we can bring a charge against you and then just let that charge sit until we feel comfortable with moving the case forward to the next level. And I don't think as a society that we are really saying that that's what we're okay with. You mentioned those deadlines that they have to act, they have to hold these preliminary hearings within 30 days if the defendant is jail, within 60 days if they're not. When you and I last talked, uh, which was back uh, in March, those rules were pretty new. The Missouri Supreme Court had just said people needed to follow them. And you were worried at that point that the circuit attorney's office would continue to find a way around these rules by continuing to go to the 
grand jury and just sort of um, remove that need for the preliminary hearing because they're they're going this slower, different route while the guy's already in custody. Has that happened as you feared it would? Yes, absolutely. And I, I mean, there are two simple solutions to what I view, Sarah, as a very simple rule. One of them, Mr. Tony Messenger talked about in his recent article, which would be for the circuit attorney's office to stop filing cases by complaint if they don't intend to hold a prelim within that time. And again, as we talked, that's a perfect solution if you're indeed short-staffed, because you can bring a case when you're ready. But the second solution is if the state is going to continue to file like that, and they're not intending to give our clients their due process rights under the rules, the associate court should follow the rules. And we saw this play out this week, the juxtaposition of this in the case that you teased at the beginning, um, where you heard the family of Mr. Moore talk about Mr. K- the case against Mr. Campbell. The circuit judge in that case, uh, Judge Jason Sennheiser, heard motions regarding the unreasonable and unnecessary delays and the procedural violations, and then wrote a very detailed and thorough order holding the state accountable. And that meant in this case that he dismissed the case important to note, without prejudice, so the state could refile if they wanted to because of those violations and delays. And if you, Sarah, juxtapose that with the approach in the associate circuit courts in St. Louis, where it seems like the court is looking for every possible way to make sure that a case just gets the circuit court, regardless of procedural violations, the state does not have much of an incentive to follow the rules because they're not being held accountable to them in the associate circuit courts. Do you think uh, Judge Sennheiser's uh, action here, this has obviously generated a lot of bad publicity for the circuit attorney's office. Do you think this has their attention in a way that you previously speaking out, other people speaking out didn't lead to changes? I, I'm hopeful uh, that, that it would be. One, because of how thorough and detailed his order was. It, it was obviously he took a great deal of care, consideration, and obviously had a great deal of legal knowledge when he wrote that with regards to why he was doing what he was. I will say I was mildly concerned that I saw, to your question, a response to his action saying that the court was in the wrong because they, could, they should have known that the, the, the state was just going to nolly and refile. And I think that that is a very unfortunate way to look at that situation because what we're suggesting there is that the court should ignore the law because the state has this power available to them. And I am thankful that Judge Sennheiser evaluated the situation as he did, came to the conclusion under the law that was correct, even though it might not have been the most comfortable thing to do. That is what we ask our judges to do, and I think that he showed that in earnest this week. Hmm. In our final minutes here, I want to pull this back to look a little bit at the bigger picture. Uh, Circuit Attorney Gardner has built a national reputation as a criminal justice reformer. We all saw the 60-minute story. Do you think the reality on the ground matches up with that? Philosophically, yes. Um, And I know in the past you've mentioned the diversion programs. Um, You know, there's been a number of cases that have been refused by her office. I think the procedures that she's putting in place to evaluate cases that are brought to her by the police is much more rigorous than than in previous administrations. Um, And I, I also think that Kim brings new ideas, and I agree with some of those. But important to note, Sarah, attorneys are not trained to be managers. We're trained to be advocates. And I think Kim is an advocate for criminal legal reform, and I do respect that. But I think there needs to be increased management focus along with those. She's, she's shown a, a great willingness to think about positive reforms. I just hope that her office can develop some, of the, some trust with some local agencies, including my own, the Freedom Community Center, the mayor's office, Places for People, the pretrial office, that would allow for better implementation 
of those reform ideas. And if she doesn't do that, if she continues to believe in these ideas, but things are just kind of a mess on the ground level, um, can that be true reform from, from what you've seen? It's going to be hard. It will. It, I will tell you that the, the public defender's office is going to continue to push for those things to come into reality, and I'm hoping that we can continue to make leeway in the associate courts with them holding accountable the circuit attorney's office, because I believe if the court is holding her accountable under the rules, I think some of those reforms will come to be because it will force her hand into the management and organizational side. Well, Matthew Mahaffey, it's always great to get your perspective on this, and I thank you so much for joining us today. I still thank you for having me on again. It's been, it's been a great time. Uh, Matthew is the district defender for St. Louis. That's in the Office of Public Defender. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.